0: following program originally aired on May 31st, 2017. Welcome to Grayson 30 on LP, Arlington 96.7 FM.
1: This is Ed Mellick, and I'm joined by my co-host Sal Dietrich. Sal, you excited about tonight's guest? Ed, tonight we return to the topic of racial reconciliation. Our guest tonight, Daryl Davis, well-known local musician, author. He's an African-American who's on a mission to tear down some of the most extreme barriers between whites and blacks in our country and right here in the Baltimore, D.C. area. For 30 years, Daryl's been seeking out and befriending members of the Ku Klux Klan, watching them radically transform their lives to the point where some of these men have even given up their beliefs, their hoods, and robes to Daryl for a museum that he's planning to create. He joins us to talk about the power of crossing the divide, to truly listening to people, something we've talked about a lot on this show. He's going to talk about what he learned from performing with folks like Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Bo Diddley. So, a lot going on. It's going to be a jam session tonight. Daryl, my friend, welcome to Grace in 30. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome, welcome. You know, I heard you speak at uh, Grace Community Church recently,
0: loved it. Let's start off from basically, Daryl, I understand you spent most of your early childhood overseas, and you didn't really experience uh, racism until you returned to America at around age 10. And this led you to pose a question that seemed to kick off your reconciliation quest. So please tell us about that experience and how it changed you.
2: Well, basically, my, my parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service. And so you get assigned to a country for two years overseas, and then you return home here, back to the States, of your own country for six months, nine months a year, and then you're back overseas again. Well, in the early 1960s, when I was overseas as a child in elementary school, my classes were filled with other kids from other countries. All embassy kids went to the same school. So my classes had Nigerians, Italians, French, Japanese, Russian, Swedish, whatever. And it looked like a little United Nations. But at the same time that I was being what you would call, I guess, multicultural, at the same time, my peers back home here in my own country were either going to newly integrated schools or still segregated ones, and there was not the amount of diversity in the classroom. It was just all black kids or black and white kids, and that's what I would experience when I would return home. And of course, today, you walk into a classroom, it is multicultural, okay? So back then, I was living overseas. 12 to 15 years ahead of my time, because that scenario had yet to come to this country. So while I was getting along with people from all over the world, when I would come home, I would not understand why people couldn't get along. It was baffling to me. Mm. So I formed a question in my mind after some racial uh, experiences that I had. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? I formed that question at the age of 10. Today I'm 59 years old and I've been looking for the answer for 48, 49 years. After not being able to find it, I thought, well, who better to ask than someone who would join an organization whose whole premise was hating those who do not look like them and those who do not believe as they believe. So I began seeking out those people. So you've been
0: to 53 countries, correct? Or been to? I've
2: been to 53 uh, different countries on six continents. I've lived in, in several of them. So the story you had told was that uh, when you came
0: home, you were marching with the Scouts? That is correct. I was a Cub Scout. And you were carrying the flag. And uh, tell us a little bit about what happened then.
2: Well, I was in Belmont, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston. I had just joined the Cub Scouts, and my den mother let me carry the American flag in a parade, marching from Lexington to Concord to celebrate or commemorate the ride of Paul Revere. Uh, I was the only black person in this march, and the streets were lined, sidewalks were lined with white people, most of them cheering and waving flags. And there was a small group of white people, a couple kids, a couple adults, who were throwing things, and I was the target. And I didn't realize I was the target until my den mother, cub master, pack leader, troop leader all rushed over and huddled over me Mm -hmm. and escorted me out of the danger. It was then that I realized nobody else was getting this treatment, so why are they hitting me? and they wouldn't tell me uh, you know my my troop leaders would not tell me they just kept saying move along move along it'll be okay so when i got home my parents thought i had fallen and asked me how did you fall down and get all scraped up i told them i didn't fall i told them exactly what happened i was age 10 and my parents sat down and ed for the first time in my life i heard the word racism i didn't even know what they were talking about that's how naive i was
0: so let's jump ahead to your first significant relationship with a Klansman. Uh, it, it began when you were playing with a country band in at the Silver Dollar Lounge at the Frederick Truck Stop back in 1983. Tell us about that first encounter and how that relationship developed. Well, in
2: 1983 country western music, or as it was being called back then, just country, that they dropped the western, uh, had made a resurgence, and there was a movie out called Urban Cowboy with oh, the yeah. mechanical bull and all the line dancing and stuff. <laughs> So uh, a lot of bars had switched over from top 40 to country, and me being a full-time musician, uh, I joined a country band because I wanted to work. I was the only black guy in the band, and uh, the only black guy in many of the places where we would play. So we, we played this uh, Silver Dollar Lounge, which at the time was a uh, all-white truck stop bar. It wasn't that blacks could not go in there. It was that blacks chose not to go in there, and it was a good choice because they were not welcome. So here i was in the place and the band had been there before it was my first time in there when i came off the bandstand after the first set taking a break a white gentleman approached me and remarked that um he really enjoyed the music and this was the first time he'd ever heard a black man play piano like jerry lee lewis and i was not offended but i was surprised that he did not know the origin of that style of music and i tried to explain to him well Jerry Lee learned it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where that rockabilly rock and roll came from. Well, he was unbelieving, and I explained to him, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis is a good friend of mine. He's told me himself where he learned how to play. The guy didn't buy that I knew Jerry Lee, and he didn't buy that Jerry Lee learned anything from black people. But he was fascinated with me and wanted to buy me a drink. And I don't drink alcohol, but I went back and had a cranberry juice with him and a friend. And through the course of our conversation, when he said that this was the first time he'd ever sat down with a black person and had a drink. And this guy had to be maybe 20 years older than me, maybe in his mid-40s at the time. And I'm thinking, H- how can this be? I know there are black people in Frederick, Maryland, because I've seen them. <laughs> so, so how did he miss them all in 40-some years? And I naively asked him why. And um, he hesitated, and, and his friend prodded him, saying, tell him, tell him. And the guy finally told me, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan he showed you his card, right? And then he showed me his card. Yeah, well, when I started laughing, he pulled out his card, because I didn't believe him. And then, you know, once I, I I recognized all the logos on the card and all this, and so I stopped laughing, because yeah. <laughs> it, it was real. <laughs> it's
1: interesting you talk about this, because, you know, this weekend we just watched, uh, well, with our daughters, the, the new movie, uh, Hidden Figures. Mm-hmm. And to see their expressions as they're seeing about racism and segregation at NASA, Back in the moon in the moonshot years. Right. It's it's they're asking all these questions. Like, what was this? Why is that like that? Is a whole generation of people who, who need to hear this experience, whether you're a member of the clan or not. And, right. and we're in- reintroducing this topic to people at a very young age with the hope that, you know, we don't see this repeated. You said the gentleman you met at the Silver Dollar Lounge eventually put you in touch with Roger Kelly. Who was the Imperial Wizard, or so the national leader of wow. the
2: Ku Klux Klan? Is that is that right? Almost. Uh, yes. He put me in touch with Roger Kelly, who at that time was the Grand Dragon, which means state leader for the uh, for the Ku Klux Klan for the state of Maryland. And then he would later become an Imperial Wizard, which means national leader.
1: And that first meeting, at the end, Roger gave you the card and said, "Stay in touch." That so you started forming relationships at that level
2: yes but um, these guys
1: were handing out a lot of cards
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and i and i still have them believe it or not oh. but uh yeah uh the guy who gave me rogers contact information you know did not want me to reveal to mr kelly where i got his information
0: yeah i noticed be- you haven't named him any time i've talked to you or
2: yeah heard you speak because he, he was fearful that if he were to, t- to send a black person to roger kelly uh, we'd both be in trouble and he warned me, he told me not to fool with Roger Kelly because uh, Roger Kelly would kill me. And, uh, but I was bound and determined to get the answer to my question of how can you hate me when you don't even know me. And uh, Roger and I, you know, over time became very, very good friends. And it was a long relationship, I mean. It Absolutely.
0: So tell us about, you know, I know that he, at some point he invited you to a Klan rally. Yes, he did. So you went to that, and, and, and was the very first time you went, was that the time that CNN covered that or was it a subsequent rally? Or
2: That was a subsequent rally. Okay, so how many,
0: how many rallies did you go to?
2: Uh, well, I've been to a bunch of them. I, I, I've lost track of how many now. But at that particular time, I had been to perhaps two or three. So it, and I remember in the CNN story,
0: uh, and you, you, you noted this when you spoke to Grace Community, that Roger said at one point that his views had been cemented in his mind. And, and, and But he, he respected you for listening to him. Very, very key. You know, this is really a wisdom that has to be listened to, correct? So, yes, so tell he, us about that. Yeah.
2: He made, you know, he told all the Klan members in the crowd gathered there. He said, and, and I'll, I'll paraphrase or quote it, we may not agree on everything, but, le- but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me, and I respect him to sit down and listen to him, mm-hmm. and he, and the him and he was referring to me. And that is a very, very poignant statement. And that is something that anybody and everybody can use, uh, whether it involves race or not. If you have an opponent, an adversary, with an opposing point of view, take race off the table. Some other hot topic, you know, be it abortion. Trump-Clinton. Trump-Clinton. The nuclear weapons, global warming, the war in, in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, whatever. You're on one side, they're on the other. Give that person a platform allow them to express their views and if you agree with them that's fine if you don't agree with them that's fine too you challenge them but you don't do it violently or rudely you said look i need more clarification as to why you think i should believe as you do give me some more explanation and when you do things like that there is an excellent chance that they will reciprocate and give you a platform to express your views so then you do you, know, you make sure you've done your homework so that you can you know, disseminate your group your, your views in an intelligent and influential manner. Because at the end of the day, you each have to think about what the other person said.
0: Yeah, this is a theme that comes up over and over and over when we talk about grace and giving people something that's unmerited or unearned or undeserved. It's all about listening. We just hear this over and over, and then you build a relationship with the exactly. person, and that's when thing. So, tell us what happened eventually with Roger Kelly yeah. and what came out of that relationship with you.
2: Well, you know, like you say, uh, he respected me to sit down and listen to him, to me, and I respect him to sit and listen to him. And I want to make it clear that I did not respect what he had to say, but I respected his right to say it. Yep. And that's very important. So we don't have to agree with somebody, but we have to give them the opportunity to express their views. And if we find something that we can agree with, that's fine. So... By by sitting down and speaking with Roger Kelly and showing him that respect and then him reciprocating that re- respect, we each had something to think about. And he thought about the things and experiences that he'd had with me and his conversations with me over the years um, because he had never in, in, uh, engaged himself in a, in a social setting with a black person before. He rescinded his views and he left the Ku Klux Klan and today I am the recipient of his robes and hoods. But more um, important than that, uh, Roger Kelly at the time had the largest Klan contingency in the state of Maryland. And when Roger Kelly quit the Ku Klux Klan, the Klan in the state of Maryland fell apart. There was no more Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. That does not mean that there are no more racists in the state of Maryland, but there was no more organized racism. There were there are a few people, three or four hardcore people who've tried to revive the Klan, but they've been un, unsuccessful. Three or four of them will show up and try to hold a public clan rally and two or two of the four will be drunk. So that does not constitute, you know, an organized clan.
0: And and this took time and effort. I mean this was over years yes. that you met with him and, and I listened to the story you told at Grace where you were you, the first time you met him he brought the Nighthawk the armed you know that's bodyguard right. and that eventually got to the point where he would drive alone over to your house and visit exactly. you and that, and, that and took years only, to happen
2: not only that not only would he come to you know, uh, you know he, initially he, he'd always bring the Nighthawk which, uh, which in clan terminology means bodyguard a Grand Nighthawk would be the bodyguard to the Grand Dragon where an Imperial Nighthawk would be the bodyguard to the Imperial Wizard and this guy would carry an automatic semi-automatic sidearm to protect him that's his job uh, but it got to the point where, uh, even as as Grand Dragon and as Imperial Wizard, he trusted me that much that he would come to my house unarmed and by himself. I even took him down to Howard University, which is an all-black uh, university, which is my alma mater. Mm-hmm. And I took him down there just, you know, he and I. And, uh, and he trusted me that much. Yep. See, he went into y- your space at that yeah. point, just like mm-hmm. you had gone into his.
0: Darrell, I just want to mention really quickly. Uh, I, I saw the video of you appearing on the Steve Harvey show, and uh, you had another person on, Scott Shepard, uh, who was a Grand Dragon and later an Imperial Wizard, another national leader. And it was just epically. I mean, he he wept on the show. His he was reunited with his daughter.
2: Who, who, yes, his daughter had disowned him for his racist views. You know, he is from the Deep South, from Mississippi, and where he joined the Klan. He was good friends with Byron De La Beckwith the man who murdered, the Klansman who murdered Medgar Evers. Hmm. He knew the, the, uh, the murderers of the three civil rights workers from 1964. He was friends with these guys. And uh, he was an imperial wizard down there in Mississippi and a grand dragon in Tennessee. He, he made a complete turnaround with his life,
0: yeah, it was amazing. It, 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 the, his daughter wept, and she looked at you and just thanked God for you getting involved in his life. And the thing I wanted to touch on is, you've had these sort of relationships with a handful of, of high level clansmen, and and how many rogues do you have now?
2: Uh, you know, I I don't really count them, but I've gotten I've gotten a few in the last six eight months. Hmm. Um, I would say just under forty. But you know, it's it's not really the number of robes that you know that I have. You know, they all will go into a museum. It's the number of hearts that have changed. Because Amen. you know what? If you change, if if one person changes, that changes a generation.
0: Yep, absolutely. So we got lots to cover. So I want to make sure we talk a little bit about your mu- music background. I, I heard you play uh, at at Grace. You were an awesome keyboard player, uh, incredibly talented. You had the privilege of playing with a number of very well known artists like uh, Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Jerry Lee Lewis, many others. But you said something really interesting. You said that, that Chuck Berry is an unwritten civil rights hero. Absolutely. And, and I want you to explain what you mean by that.
2: And I, and I will give that title also not only to Chuck Berry, but also to Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, Bo Diddley, Fats Domino, uh, those, the, the pioneers of rock and roll. Rock and roll was a, and still is, a, a black art form that was created by black musicians Uh, who who would take the blues and boogie-woogie and blend it with country music and came up with this thing known as rockabilly, rock and roll. Up until, uh, well, even throughout the 1950s um, and and prior, music venues, concert halls, were segregated. If they allowed black people in at all, Mm -hmm. uh, there, there were ropes going around the seating sections with signs hanging That would say seating for white patrons only or colored seating only. You and I could not sit next to each other at one of these concerts. If we went to see Frank Sinatra in the 40s or whatever, or Nat King Cole in the 50s, we could not sit together. You know, we had to sit according to the color of our skin. Well, two phenomenons happened in the 50s. One was the invention of rock and roll by these black artists, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Fast Domino, Bo Diddley. And it was popularized by the white artists, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Buddy Holly, Bill Haley and the Comets, et cetera. When, they, when these guys came out playing that new beat that no one had ever heard before, that boogie-woogie with a backbeat to it, white kids and black kids could not sit still. They bounced up out of their seats. They began flailing and dancing and knocking those signs over out of control. And next thing you know, they were dancing together in the aisles. This was the first time in American history this had ever happened. Mm -hmm. And it was caused by rock and roll, which caused the city fathers, when I say city fathers, of course, I mean the white, you know, county managers and city managers to go crazy. They, they, They condemned rock and roll. They did not want rock and roll coming to their town because it caused race mixing. And of course, race mixing leads to what? Miscegenation. And and they, they criticized and demonized even one of their own, Elvis Presley, because he was dancing around like a black person, mm-hmm. knocking his knees and wiggling his hips and all that. They kicked him off of TV, all right? But the demand was so high, they had to bring him back on TV, but they only filmed him from the waist up, ah. so you wouldn't see his his knees wiggling and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. These guys, while, while people like Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, and many other black and white civil rights activists were marching, having sit-ins, boycotts, and protests and demonstrations in order to bring white and black adults together. These rock and roll people were achieving that with black and white youth through their music. That's why I say they all are are unwritten civil rights heroes.
0: It's really cool because they they weren't even working at it. Exactly. They were were doing what they loved. The power of music. The power of rock and roll. (laughs) (laughs) That's great.
1: Like you, you're an amazing you you know accomplished person you've written this book uh, clandestine relations a black man's odyssey in the klu klux Klan It was around the time of the cnn story. You, know, you were uh, part of a pbs documentary entitled accidental courtesy You know it's been a new york times critics pick uh, tell us about you know how some of this work has been received in the African American community. I mean, because you've been uh, all, all over in terms of media, in terms of some of your writings. You've been working with folks like um, activists in Baltimore and other places. H- how are you looked upon in the,
2: in the African American community? Well, it depends upon who's looking at me. You know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you know, African Americans are just as individual as as white people are, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, there are those who will see me uh, or see a picture. Of me shaking hands with a clansman or sitting down at a fully robed and hooded clan member, and they will have a visceral reaction like, "What the heck is this?" You know, and, and and without bothering to read the backstory, they'll assume that I'm a sellout. I've 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 you know with these people. Uh, I've been called Uncle Tom. I've been called an Oreo and all kinds of you know, Uncle Ruckus and all kinds of different names, uh, because they're having that visceral reaction. But then there are other black people who, you know, of course, they have that visceral reaction, but they take the time to find out just what the heck is going on, and they read the story, and then they say, oh, oh, okay, I get it. wow, this is really cool. Yeah, this is really cool. Because I've had people uh, put up derogatory things about me, memes and whatever else, uh, all over, you know, Facebook, and then people write it and criticize and call me all kinds of names, and then one of them reads the backstory or sees me on Steve Harvey and sees you know what i've done mm-hmm. and then they write me and say oh you know i'm really sorry about what i said and i've taken down you know this this derogatory thing i put up on you and you know you're really cool yeah
0: i think the most extreme example of this is uh, what was shown in the documentary there was about a ten minute clip where you had a conversation with Kwame rose and Tariq torre and jc falk up in baltimore um... i guess Kwame is sort of a lead player in, in black lives matter in baltimore and the exchange was quite heated and then you guys got to talking afterwards tell us tell us about that story about that exchange and then your relationship now with him
2: okay um well first let me let me preface something the idea behind black lives matter is a very good idea it, it was it was created to bring the national spotlight to put attention on um the number of black men who for lack of a better word have been murdered by white police officers uh, where um, white uh, men in the same situation uh, have been treated far differently. They get to go home or they get to go to jail where the black men get to go to their grave. So we needed to nationally spotlight that so people can see what's going on here. Uh, Unfortunately, the mistake that Black Lives Matter has made is that it did not centralize They did not uh, trademark the name or centralize it, like, say, for example, the Boy Scouts of America or the NAACP or the Red Cross. These are centralized organizations where policy is created at the headquarters and disseminated to all the chapters around the country. Black Lives Matter has 50 or 60 chapters around the country, but none of them are on the same page. I have people from Black Lives Matter in Detroit and New York who have come to my lectures or emailed me and said, hey, man, you know, what you're doing is really cool. How can we help? How can we do this? And then you've got the ones in Baltimore and other places who demonize me for what I'm doing. So there's no centralization, you understand? Now, with Kwame Rose, what you saw in the movie was the first time I met him. The first words out of his mouth to me were, in the movie, was, um, I understand you're the first black KKK member. Oh. Well, you know, where did he get that from? Yeah. He, he got that information, obviously it's false, because if black people could join the KKK, there wouldn't be a KKK, right? right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, somebody gave him false information or he misinterpreted something, and he was having that visceral reaction. So he was already geared up, you know, on the attack. It got very contentious because he did not get the backstory. His friends did not get the backstory, and they ganged up on me. About a year later, Kwame Rose and I had the opportunity to go out and have dinner together. And we sat around and talked, and we had a good time. And he and I have become friends, and he did an addendum to the film, which you'll see as, as one of the uh, extras in the film. He says, I wish I had met Daryl Davis before this film.
0: Here it is again, really, really simple you cross the line, you sat down with him, you broke some bread, you got to know him, and look at the amazing things happening. And and I think, you know, that's the call here. Yeah, but
2: but you know, Ed and Sal, the the whole thing is this. This is what I see, and, and what's wrong with the world. This person will go on CNN and talk about that person and bash that person, so then that person retaliates and goes on Fox News and talks about this person and bashes this person. And then a couple days later, they both are on MSNBC talking at each other. Yelling at each other. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So people are either talking about each other or they're talking at each other. I will do something different. I will sit down and talk with Mm -hmm. each other. And that is what solves these issues.
0: I want to make sure you, you have some time to issue one or two or three calls to action. What are the one or two or three most important things you want to share with the listeners and encourage them to do to, to start pushing this sort of change in, in society
2: right now? You know, our society is getting more and more diverse by the minute. Take the time to get to know someone. Walk across the cafeteria and sit at somebody else's table for a change and learn about them and let them learn about you. Uh, also, you know, we are going to have different differences of opinion. When two enemies are talking, they're you know, they're not fighting. They might be yelling and screaming, but they're not fighting. They're talking. It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So keep the conversation going. Ignorance breeds fear. If you don't keep that fear in check, that fear will breed hatred. If you don't keep that hatred in check, that hatred will, will breed destruction. And we've seen it.
0: You also said you never set out to convert anybody, just right. to understand, you know, how someone could hate me without knowing me. Right. Anything else you'd like to share? Got about forty five more seconds.
2: Well, I'd like people to, to get in contact with me. You know, email me, go to my website, Darrell at daryldavis.com, Daryl Davis that's how you spell Daryl. Daryl at DarylDavis.com. You know, and let's let's get together. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk with each other. And I invite anybody, those who agree with me and those who disagree with me, let's have the conversation. Look,
1: uh, Daryl, man, it's been great. My uh, pleasure. Loved having you on the show. Um, thank you for the work you're doing and tearing down the walls between blacks and whites, people really of all races in our country. Your story of your engagement with the Ku Klux Klan of reaching out, is one of incredible courage and determination. I don't I don't think I could have ever done it. Ed. If listeners want to find out more about Daryl, again, his website Daryl Davis, D-A-R-Y-L-Davis.com. More information on our Facebook and Twitter pages. This show is gonna re-air this Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on WERA 96.7 FM. Ed, talk is out of this one, my friend. This
0: is Ed and Sal signing off from Grace and Thirty on WERALP, Arlington, uh, ninety-six point seven FM. Everybody have a great night, and be sure to tune into Grace.